Blog Talk Radio. Good, hot, hot, hot Saturday morning to all of our off-the-shelf listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in. For those of you up there in Harlem, New York, at the Harlem Book Fair, oh, my goodness, God bless all of y'all. I've been up there in that heat. I know there is not much shade up there. Hope you all get lots of book sales and tons of people come out. It's supposed to get up over 100 degrees here in Philadelphia, and I'm sure New York's going to be scorching just as well. For those of you who are tuning in for the first time, I want to introduce myself to you and the show, and thank you, as always, for tuning in to Off the Shelf on this beautiful Saturday morning. I am your host, Denise Turney, coming to you live from a city of brotherly love, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And as always, I thank you, thank you for your support. And I encourage you not to let another day pass before you pick up a copy of Long Walk Up. It's available in ebook at ebook it and at my website at www.chistel.com. If you want to be inspired and encouraged and motivated, this is a book you'll want to definitely pick up and read. You can also get Long Walk Up at any bookstore, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, Walmart. If you don't see it on the shelf, just ask the clerk for it. They can order it for you because it's carried by the largest book distributors in the world. And now let us go and meet our very special off-the-shelf guest here today. And we do have a treat for you. Normally we bring people who are just authors, book writers, but today we also have a very accomplished musician here with us. Our special guest today is Russell Blake. He's an accomplished musician who has more than 30 years of experience in the art form. He has traveled to and performed in some 65 countries. He is an educator and an author, and he is the brother of jazz musician Alex Blake. He has worked with artists like Angie Stone, Shaka Khan, Brenda Russell, and the amazing Wynton Marsalis. Russell is the author of the book Proverbs 23. Proverbs 31, The Virtuous Woman, which we're going to discuss today. And he would love for you to visit him online at www.russellblake.net, which is spelled R-U-S-S-E-L-1-L-B-L-A-K-E.net. Again, that's R-U-S-S-E-L-1-L, two S's, one L, B-L-A-K-E.net. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Russell. Thank you so much, Denise. It's a privilege to be here. Thank you for the invitation. And so happy to have you here with us. You definitely, as I was telling you before the start of the show, you definitely use your creative talents. I was the more I researched for the interview uh, today's show, the more I was just impressed with what you have accomplished, achieved, and continue to do. And I wanted to ask you, which came first for you as far as your passion as a creator? Which came first for you, writing or music? Uh, It was actually music. I was introduced to music first. Of course, growing up in the home, like most families, you're exposed to the various music that your parents enjoy. And as far as a performer and a musician, it was introduced to me at the age of 12, and I didn't have much of a choice in that, and that it was part of a vision. Actually, it was the vision that my dad had for both myself and my brother, that we would both play this instrument called the, the bass. So uh, music was actually the medium that was introduced to me first. Did your father play the bass guitar as well? No, no, that's the very interesting thing about this whole equation is that my dad was a self-taught musician, but he played trombone and trumpet. Those were his instruments of livelihood as a musician. He was all around what we would call today entrepreneur. He uh, was a barber. He was a self-taught photographer. He taught himself how to barber. He taught himself photography and became a professional in both. He taught himself music. And this is a gentleman who only had a fourth-grade education. He was wow. at nine years old in order to go to work and support the family. He was one, the only boy in seven children. So he had to the age of uh, nine years old to go to work. And he suffered as a result of not being literate both in grammar and in mathematics as well as, as being. And by the grace of God, uh, he was destined to meet my mom and 
he said of all the women that he had met, she was the most intelligent stuck with her. And she taught him how to read. She taught him how to write. She taught him mathematics. But in getting back to your question specifically, my dad did not play the instrument, which is what baffles so many people's minds is how could he teach my brother and myself an instrument that he never performed on? And basically he answered that question by saying he allowed the wisdom of God to instruct him how to instruct him. He bought the best books for us. He bought not only bass books, but he bought trombone books as well as cello books because all those instruments are in the same cleft. And so he brought us trombone books and cello books so that we would also have a different approach to playing the bass. And he said what he did when he used to work as a musician in Panama and in New York, he would always watch the bass players. He would always keep his, his eyes on how their technique was approached on the instrument, and he used that same quality of empirical knowledge when it came to my brother and myself. So it's very interesting that he uh, taught us an instrument that he himself never played, never performed, never picked up, but he just followed through with a vision that God gave him, that both of his sons were going to play the instrument. Praise wow, God. you know, and you know, when I was listening to you talk about your father leaving school early to uh to work to support the family that was more common i know both not my not my grandfather but my grandmother said she did the same that was more common then but you would never know my grandmother hadn't graduated with a high school diploma she, you would never know it she was very intelligent right. And, right. and maybe maybe Perhaps schooling was different then, where you got more during those early years than you get today, because she, she was as intelligent to me as somebody who had graduated from college. And she mm-hmm. she she went to the fifth grade. She could read read and write and and do those you know like a math equations, but you would never know she dropped out in the fifth grade and right. managed managed. And but but what I admire about your father, and I see some of it in you and our audience here at Off the Shelf. Well, as we continue with the interview, you've that entrepreneurial spirit. My father was an entrepreneur, and I, I, I sense it in, the, in, in researching for, for this show that you picked that up from your father. Uh, so you were 12 years old when you started really sitting down and working with the uh, bass guitar. Did you want to do this? Was this – now, it was your father's vision – and and I think as you said that I was thinking about the Jackson Five, their father, and the Williams sisters in tennis, their father. Uh, was this something that you just started out like really not liking, almost hating, and then you learned to appreciate it, or did you always have a passion for playing uh, uh, music? No, it was uh, let's say the best word I could use that would be politically correct as well as legally feasible, uh, would be that it was implemented upon me. It was not my desire at all. At that age, I was thinking about becoming an Air Force fighter pilot. You know, that's what I was thinking about. I loved music, just like everybody else, James Brown, Jackson 5, whole nine. You know, I loved it. Mm -hmm. It was not in my thought processes to become a musician. And one day my dad came home after my 12th birthday and had this $40 bass and said I was going to play it, not unlike my brother 10 years earlier. And he had me on the instrument four hours a day, every day, every day, four hours a day. When he went to work, he had my mom to be police, you know, to police and discipline and to make sure that when I came home from school after my homework was done, that I was to sit down in the porch with the books as instructed and to study four hours a day, including Saturdays and Sundays. And within three months' time, I began working as a professional musician. And at the age of 12, it was quite precarious in the sense that most of these establishments that I was working at had a liquor license. And so the owner was always concerned about losing his license through, you know, the police being informed that a minor was working in his establishment. So what often had to be done was that I was placed behind in the back. When we were on stage, I was in the back, and all of the musicians would stand in front of me. So I would be sitting down playing the bass, and I'd have all the musicians, all the trombone players, the singers, everybody would stand in front of me so that I was out of sight. And that was the best way to assuage the nerves of the owners of the night clubs. But uh, the reason I say it will probably be politically correct and legally feasible to say that my dad implemented this on me because I did not go down without a fight. 
My brother did not go down without a fight. You know, we're 12 years old. All of a sudden, you're going to tell me that I'm going to do right. this for the rest of my life and yada, yada, yada. So she <laughs> uh, brought that bass home, and I took it that night. And uh, the next morning when we went to work, and I put it in the garbage. I put it outside in the trash can. And uh, I was going to show him who I was, and he came home from work. <laughs> Took it out the trash can and was going to show me who he was. And uh, the rest is history, as they say. Oh, it's amazing. Uh, I'm, I'm Again. still researching what possibilities of a lawsuit I may have against him. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> That's interesting. Again, I'm thinking the Williams sisters, tennis, the the Jackson Five. Mm-hmm. That wasn't mm-hmm. their dream to, to, to do. That was their father's dream. And then yes. they it turned out that they end up loving the, what his dream was that doesn't always yeah. work that way though some Correct. some youth are are pushed into becoming doctors and lawyers and going into certain business industries and they never they never enjoy it so i I'm, right. I'm not really i don't know that I'm glad it worked out for you I'm not one the proponent of that but I'm glad it worked I'm, out for you yeah i think on most often when it's in the area of entertainment the person who seems to have been let's say, are strongly pushed into that vocation, they tend to uh, become more agreeable to it because of more of the nuances of that particular vocation. You get to travel. My father always spoke and said that this instrument is going to take you around the world. You know, it's going to bring you before kings and queens and presidents and, and things of that nature. And at that time, of course, I'm not believing him. I'm not, you know. But he's speaking prophetically from what God has implemented into his spirit. Uh, so once I start traveling and once I start working with these names, these huge names, like the Harry Belafonte and so on and doing Broadway plays and the money is coming in in extraordinary amounts, then you begin to become obviously more agreeable when you're traveling around the world, you know, when you're going to these different places. Then the vision that he has strongly been obedient to in, in implementing into your life, then you become a lot more agreeable. To it, so I would tend to think that uh, prophecy, uh, as the Word of God says, you know, the blessing of the Lord is good, and it adds no sorrow mm. with it. And yeah. for one to to become aware that they have a particular musical talent that can move people to healing, yeah. that can move people to joy, mm. you know, you begin to understand uh, the dynamics of it are greater than your obstinacy to it, and. Uh, Praise God. And that sort of leads into my next question. And you know that you've noted at your website, which again for our listeners is Russell Two S's One L Blake B L A K E dot net. You know that your website that you've performed before audiences in, in parts of the world that didn't speak English but who understood music's language. What do you think? And I've heard Michael Jackson say that as well. What do you think it is about music that makes it humanity's universal language? Well, the fact that it was with us from the beginning of time. Um, In Scripture, you have over 75 verses that are related to the art form of dance, but you have over 1,150 verses related to the art form of music. Music was given unto humanity from God to keep us in harmony with him. So its properties, its indigenous metaphysical spiritual properties, are so powerful that they transcend cultural boundaries. They transcend distance physically. You know, they they are, it, it's a healing art form, which is right now, for example, it is so widely used now. Uh, there's music therapy in hospitals. Mm-hmm. 20 years ago, that was non-existent. But mm-hmm. now medicine is beginning to understand that there are more um, properties, more healing properties in music than there are in psychotic drugs that you will more likely than not implement healing faster in an individual who is suffering from some mental uh, disorder or an individual Mm -hmm. suffering from a particular emotional or physical disorder through the use Mm -hmm. of music than you would through pharmaceutical medication. So it's always been my experience in the 65 countries that I've been to, the majority of them, the vast majority of them did not speak my language. I did not speak their language, but we were able to bridge the differences between us by virtue of the music, their love of music. Now listening to you, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, I'm cool. I'm done. 
Listening to you play, Russell, when you play the uh, bass guitar, it put me in mind, and I read a, a, a bio on him, of uh, Jacko, and I hope I'm saying his last name right, Pistorius, who who is a, a phenomenal uh, 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 artist, I'm uh, just a phenomenal musician. It just the, the smoother tunes you played, it put me in mind of him. I wanted to ask you, is the bass guitar the only instrument you play? And if it's not, do you have a favorite musical instrument and genre that you enjoy creating in uh, as a musician? Well, the bass is not the only instrument I play. I actually play both. I play the upright bass, the acoustic bass. I play the four-string electric bass as well as the five-string electric bass. I play seven different instruments in addition to that. And my favorite genre of music is good music. With all the idioms of music on the planet, there are, at last count, there are over 200 different idioms of music on the planet, uh, globally speaking. And Duke Ellington said it only boils down to two. It's either good or bad. So, ah. yeah, uh, I love good music, and that crosses all genres. There's no boundaries. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. in our Western society, we have been so marginalized into thinking categorically, you mm-hmm. know, that this music is pop, this music is R&B, this music is this, this music is that. And they put us in a compartmentalization of music that truly is not natural. It wasn't that way from the beginning. You know, right. it, music was either good or it was bad. Music comes from the continent. And on the continent, music is created for all purposes and all reasons of life. And when you know you are faced with different circumstances, you don't respond to it in the same way every time. You have to be flexible. Mm-hmm. And so your approach with the music has to be, it has to have that flexibility. Uh. So on the African continent, the where music originated, there's an entirely different concept. Here in the Western in the Western world, we hold on to our instruments. For example, and the older the instrument is, the more valuable it is in our eyes. From Stradivarius in Europe, you know, the violins, et cetera, et cetera, to here in the United States with Fender guitars or whatever. On the continent in Africa, particularly in the, the country of the Congo, they will create a music that will it is supposed to have a life. Ex, uh, existency of one year. After one year, it must be destroyed. Wow. It must be, it must be buried in the earth. And when I inquire as to the reasons for that, their answer is simple. It was born, it did its purpose here on this planet, and it now must return wow. to God. Wow. And so they will, yes, yes as we so, do. Yes, as uh-huh. we do. <laughs> exactly. Yes, as exactly. we do. And exactly. and and before before we go in to talk about your uh, universal language music history and cultural program and your book Proverbs thirty one the virtuous woman I just had a few other questions I wanted to ask sure. you about music uh, have you, you mentioned Duke Ellington and I my cousin Norris Turney played in his band uh, uh, my right. third third cousin uh, played in Duke Ellington's band and he plays Johnny Hodge after he took ill but I wanted to ask you um, did you ever work with you said you, you were self-taught and your father taught you. Did you ever work with another accomplished musician? Uh, if, if any of our listeners hit off the shelf, you, you just go either get a CD with uh, uh, Russell Blake's music or you can pull him up on YouTube. You'll see how talented he is. Did you did you just work with your father in practicing at home or did you have a teacher who later came in and helped you uh, during the latter years of your career? No, the only formal training that I had was through my dad and through my brother Alex. Uh, to augment what my dad was teaching me in terms of reading, because my dad was a strict disciplinarian when it came to he, his whole intent was not only to teach me the music, not only to teach me all forms of music, but to make sure that I knew how to read music, which was his desire that we would always be able to work, we would always be employable, we would not be illiterate. And unfortunately, there's so many musicians, so many of the world's greatest musicians and even musicians today who are not uh, able to read music. Therefore, they have their ability to work is compromised. So my that was one of his main intents was to make sure that we knew how to read. And he taught me how to read music. And Alex came along to augment what my dad was teaching me as far as different techniques on the bass, et cetera, et cetera. So those were my two main teachers, and that was the only formal training that I received. 
Wow, that's amazing. You know, I'm just listening to you. We said read music. I was listening to an interview by Jacko uh, the other day, and he said, you know, he thought that musicians, that was an inborn talent. I mean, anybody can play an instrument, but to, to play it extremely well, and you just have to practice to just bring the talent out more and more. But he thought it was important to learn how to read music as well, and he said he took that very seriously. This is something I've wondered about musicians for years, whether they're a lead singer uh, fronting for a, a, a group or a musician. And I've, I've long wondered, especially when you I hear about musicians going on these long tours where you you got 365 days out of a year, maybe they're, they're performing like 200 of those, which I think is uh, just, I can't hardly wrap my mind around it. How do you get yourself emotionally, mentally, physically, energetically up I mean, to create a music and sometimes play the same song as if it's the first time you played it. Show after show after show. It's just something about entertainers that I just find simply amazing. How do you pull that off? What do you do to get yourself so ready for every show like that? Well, sometimes it's easier when you're on the road because if you're going to different locales, going to different cities, different countries, the inspiration is in the newness of it all. The inspiration is in the new culture, the being introduced to a new culture, new people. Or even if you've been there before, there's always something new to be seen, always something new to be learned. So that is what is invigorating, and that is something that is what will inspire you to perform differently at the concert that evening. Just being in another culture and seeing how much the music is loved, appreciated, how much you're welcomed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's much difficult, much more difficult, excuse me, if you're playing on Broadway. Because on Broadway, you're in the pit, first of all. You have no audience interaction. Nobody, the, people, the audience doesn't even see you. You're in the pit. Number two, you're playing the same charts every single night. Day in and day out. There's, there's hardly any room for improvisation. You have to mm-hmm. play the same thing day in and day out. And you're, it becomes much more monotonous. You, you don't have the quality of inspiration to fuel you on. It just really becomes more of a job when you're doing it on Broadway. But at least when you're touring, you have that dynamic. You have the dynamic of travel and the ability to improvise, even if it's the same show. You're approaching it differently tonight than you did last night, you know. And um, it's akin for a musician to, although he may be married to one wife, he makes love to her differently every time. Or at least he should, anyway. I'll say that. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. What What is the universal? <laughs> what is the universal language? Uh, music history and cultural program. What is that? And when did you When did you create that? I created that in 1995, and it came about as a result of me coming to the realization that God has given me so much through this career of music that it was time for me to now get back. So I created a program that will enable me to go into various venues, some schools, hospitals, senior centers, libraries, military inspirations, installations, excuse me, to prisons. And basically what I would do is present a program in a lecture assembly type uh, format whereby I would introduce to the audience the various idioms of music and the innovators within each music, whether it's classical, Brazilian, traditional jazz, Latin, pop, opera, blues, etc. And little did I know of how uh, ahead of its time it would be due to the fact that Unfortunately, in our society now, when I was coming up, it was more of a variety of music that I was exposed to. And today, unfortunately, many of our youth are totally oblivious and unaware. There's a total lack of exposure to different forms of music. They are so marginalized into only listening to one or two forms of music. You know, and, and that's very, very unfortunate because all it does is it robs them of an ability that may be innate and inborn of them to be bigger and greater than themselves. Wow. And now, i got to say this. What, yes, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I mean, that is the dynamic of music, that as if you're listening to classical music and you're, you're beginning to love it, you're beginning to love the forms and, and the style and the power of, of a Mozart, 
in, in, in his compositions. And you're also loving on the other side, the form, the power, the style of a Louis Armstrong. Those two forms of music are now going to do something magically within your spirit. Mm. They're going to do something metaphysically within you that's going to broaden your consciousness and going to have you become or develop into a character that otherwise you would not have done. And the bottom line is culture enriches us. The, yes. the, the, you know, when we're exposed to various cultures, it does not diminish us. It enriches us. And yeah, that's I think one diversity, of the reasons why that our program was formed. Yeah, I think diversity in all forms, everything, whether it's nature, uh, diversity, like you say, culture amongst us as humans, anything mm-hmm. different. I couldn't imagine be sitting, living in a world where everything was Red, exactly. everything, One every house, right. every tree, right. everything was right. red. It would right. just be absolutely, we would, if we think we don't like diversity, we really wouldn't like that. <laughs> Even though some people are striving for it, we really wouldn't like that if we think we don't like diversity. But I was getting ready to say this. When I was mm-hmm. coming up in the 19, well, I was born in 62, so I'm coming up in the, I'm thinking about the uh, the, the late 70s, the, the 80, 80s, listening to music. There weren't really a lot of different genres that I heard either uh, I growing up in the South, I heard country music, of course R and B, which you don't hear that much rhythm and blues on the on the uh, on the radio today. That is really odd to me. You have to tune in to certain stations to get, where they play more older songs to even hear Aretha Franklin and Gladys Knight. You don't hear that on most mainstream stations anymore. So that is gone. Definitely country music up north is out. They don't play it up here much. And mm-hmm. I remember seeing on TV Lawrence Welk. The Lawrence Welk show <laughs> used to come on, and right. that introduced right. me to a different form of music, and he all used to come on, which was more mm-hmm. country music. I don't see those types of shows on on television anymore. I didn't get the Mozart and what whatnot when I was coming up. Not even that broad a genre, but it seems to be even more narrow now than what it was when I'm talking just what about 30 years ago it's even more narrow what you hear on radio and what you see yeah fortunately it's become it's become more corporatized and uh I remember those days that you're speaking of in the 70s and in New York we had radio stations that one station would play different forms of music in a 24-hour day they would have a classical program a jazz program a blues program an R&B program a gospel program one station Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, the powers that be, many people who came into bed with the recording industry, with the record industry, with, with record companies, the marginal, marginalization of music began to happen. They took music as a pie and they divided it up into many different people pieces. Mm. And they started to marginalize it. And there was no longer a broad genre which could educate the people, which could culturize the people. It now became something by which they could take one piece of it and let's maximize on that. Yeah. Let's maximize on that one piece. And then, unfortunately, the record companies and radio stations began to be in bed with one another regarding yeah. that policy. And we as a people suffered. You know, The music suffered and we as a people suffered. But the beauty about today is that if you desire to be have the exposure to many different forms of music through technology. You can easily get on the internet. And oh, you can yeah. Do research, you know, mm-hmm. and you can find any and all types of music right on the internet. Not only that, you can go on YouTube and you can visually see somebody mm-hmm. perform. So the responsibility is more on us as individuals to educate mm-hmm. ourselves and not to remain in the dark and to educate our children to different forms of music and not allow them to just fester in one dimension of music. Yeah, yeah. Is is universal language music history in that cultural program? Is, do, is that taught in colleges and universities? Have you tried to reach out to any colleges and universities to teach it, either at a community college or even a, a four year a, a four year uh, school as part of their curriculum? Have you have you thought about that? Well, in my career, with the success of the University of Language Music History and Cultural Program, I was fortunate enough to be contracted by five different universities across the country where I had the opportunity to present it to the various students from Auburn University in Alabama to National Community College in New York to uh, the New School on Fifth Avenue in New York City to the Georgia State University in Atlanta. So I was very fortunate that those colleges had an open mind 
and they had a, a music program that was very diverse, very versatile, and very open to what it is I was bringing to the table. But for the most part, I taught this as a individual contractor, you know, as a self-contractor. Okay. And uh, one of the biggest audiences I taught up in front of was uh, at Ironwood State Prison in Blythe, California, oh. for 5,000 inmates, 1,000 inmates wow. per day. And uh, you talk about a diverse audience from Mexican gangs to Muslims to Aryan Nation groups to um, Latino gangs to mm. Native American gangs, the whole nine yards. And if any one group of individuals are demanding of playing a particular music or being entertained by a particular music that they only like, it would be inmates, especially mm -hmm. hardened criminals like that. Mm -hmm. But I came to find out that the old adage that music suits the savage beast is very, very true because what I did was a performance before them of all genres of music, and it brought us together. It brought the audience together because the brother that was the Aryan Nation cat, he was now became open-hearted to the power of the blues and Negro spirituals and traditional jazz. The brother who was the militant of, of, uh, of a Muslim group, he now became open to something that was country, country music-based, and something that was brought in by Mozart, et cetera, et cetera. So um, this, this program has been very enriching, uh, not just for the audiences, fortunately for me, that I performed it before, but also for myself. Because what it does is just enlighten us to the power of music. And we all have that ability, you know, to continue to broaden our perception of ourselves through exposing ourselves to different forms and cultures. And, and, and versatility is the spice of life. So do not limit yourself to one particular dimension of music. Give another form of music a chance. You, know, you yes. may be surprised at what you like. Yes, that's the jazz. <laughs> when and why did you get appointed by uh, the State Department to perform as Ambassador of Goodwill to eight West African nations. Congratulations! And when it, when and why what prompted that? And when did when when did you when did you gain that appointment? It was part of the United States Information Agency, and that was done some years ago. And I was part of the Farrell Sanders Jazz Quartet. Farrell Sanders is one of the icons of modern jazz music. Uh, he made his mark primarily in the 60s, but he continues to perform today. He made his mark with a John Coltrane in the 60s. Okay. And we uh, were contracted by the State Department under the auspices of the United States Information Agency to go to these eight West African nations and to sort of uh, be a, 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 like a goodwill gesture to uh, perform. And uh, we started out in the Ivory Coast. We then went to Ghana, Nigeria, Cameroon, the Congo, Senegal, Gabon, and a little-known place called um, Sao Tome, which is Portuguese for St. Thomas. And it was an incredible experience, a very incredible experience. I cannot say that we brought, I would be foolish to say that, that we brought culture to them. <laughs> On the contrary, we actually learned more than we were able to teach because you're going to the motherland. You're going to the mm -hmm. place where the where music was originated, where it started. So we had very uh different diverse cultural exchanges with the musicians in those indigenous countries. We played not only for the ambassadors and the generals and the prime ministers, and kings and queens, but we also played for the people, which was the was the greatest aspect of it. We did a concert uh, for example, on national television in Senegal for over 20 million people that watched it. Wow. Phenomenal, phenomenal. So I would encourage everyone uh, to try to make it. I was very blessed to go by virtue of my occupation and my location, but everyone mm -hmm. should try to make it a point within their life at some point in time to go back to the continent especially, particularly, of course, to those areas that are not suffering any conflicts right now. But to right. take a visit to South Africa, take a visit to Ghana, take a visit to East Africa, and you mm. will come away with more than you brought. And that was my wow. experience. Wow. Yeah, and, and people who've gone to Africa, particularly uh, uh, people of African descent, they say that you 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 have got to go. You you yes. it, it, it will change literally change your life. Russell, you... Yes. Truly allow yourself to express as an artist, and 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 I I, I commend you on that. Um, 
I wanted to ask you, you know, just talking about your music, we could, that could take up the entire interview. You've done and accomplished so much. But now you've also gone and written a book. So I wanted to ask you, is writing, uh, so you said music for you came first. When did you, when did this bug or whatever, this desire to sit down and write a book come to you? How many years ago? This was, uh, I recently did a tour of uh, 45 nations in 145 days. And Mm. while I was away from the United States, uh, one thing that became very glaring to me, and that was the absence of women of African-American descent. My tour took me to uh, East Asia, took me to Vietnam, Myanmar, Australia, many beautiful places. But there were, no, it was just glaring me. And what that did was it had a a very dynamic effect on my persona of the immeasurable value of the women of our community and what they mean to our community, what they meant to my life, what they mean to us as black men, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I began to ponder this, and little did I know that God was using me in, in this fashion. And the adage that we don't appreciate something until it's gone was really uh, manifest in my spirit because it was just wow. a blaring absence of women of color. So I began to take it upon myself to meditate, to quiet myself, to become still, and every time that I was not performing, that I would go to a certain part of the city, whether I was in Auckland, New Zealand, or whether I was in Argentina, and I would take quality time. I would take my laptop and I would go find a very quiet place in the park, and I would begin to meditate upon the meaning, the effectiveness, the purpose a black woman upon not only my life, but upon the lives of us as men, globally, historically, politically, uh, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, the whole nine, what they have done for me that is exponential and can never be repaid, what I, in the spirit of a black man who has been abusive, have done to them and can never be forgiven. I began to take on all forms of thought. Not to say me personally that I've abused any woman. I'm just saying this is the arena of my mind that I had to take on. Because so much of we as black men, we cannot attribute any success entirely or wholly unto ourselves. What arrogance, what presumptuous Mm -hmm. nature that would be. We could not be where we are or who we are were it not for the blessing, the gift, the anointing of the black woman in our lives. And for me, I had to start with my very own mother, the most mm. beautiful woman and the first woman that I had ever laid eyes upon, my very own mother. So this is where how the came about that this book came into fruition. And it's looking at our uh, community in a way that needs to be uh, looked at by us as men in our community. Um, I began to discover how powerful the tool of perception is. And how yeah. now the women of our community are being sexually objectified at at levels never before seen. And this in light of the fact that we have a first lady who is African American. Right. Right. We have a in first Proverbs. lady who is African American. We have a first lady. Go ahead, I want you to finish your thought. Well, uh, you know, you would think that having a first lady for the first time, obviously, in the history of this country who was African-American, that it would change the perception, it would change the depictions, the portrayal of our woman in a major way, that there would be a seismic shift in how she's being portrayed. But it seems as though the opposite is true. It seems as though what forces are at work to depict our woman in a much more negative light. Case in point, the Psychology Today magazine article that came out less than two, three months yes. ago. Yeah. Stating that black women are the ugliest women on the planet, <laughs> all this foolishness. You, you know what I mean? Come on now. Mm-hmm. You know, and I can go on about the various reality shows that are uh, out. You are very well aware of them and, and the stars that have been, are the people who are the stars of those particular shows who have now become multimillionaires by virtue of portraying African-American women in a very negative, stereotypical fashion. I can go on about the pop stars who have become more naked in front of the television camera, not less naked. 
So we can go on and on and on. And the African-American woman is still depicted as the poster child for welfare, even though it's been statistically proven and said over and over and over again that there are more women of Caucasian persuasion who are welfare recipients. Mm -hmm. So it makes you wonder what is going on here. Yeah, and but 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 I would say that the um, the the, the downgraded perception of of women, I think that's across all cultures. I really do. I think that's something that's happening mm-hmm. across mm-hmm. all cultures. And when you think about entertainment, uh, sex sells. So you no, know, well, things that people doing on shows now <laughs> used to have to go go to a, a, a brothel or something to, to see that the. Now you see it. You just turn on the TV at two in the afternoon. <laughs> People used to have to pay money to go see this type of stuff. You see it right there on at two o'clock in the afternoon. I wanted to ask you, for our off the shelf listeners, Proverbs thirty one, the virtuous uh, black women. Is that a book of poetry, Russell, or nonfiction? What tell our readers if they when they get uh, Proverbs thirty one, the virtuous black woman? What are they going to get? What's in the book? What are some of the topics you approach and discuss? What are they going to come away with? It's a three-volume series. Proverbs 31, The Virtuous Black Woman is Volume 1. Volume 2 will be Proverbs 31, The Virtuous Woman, to encompass all genres, all ethnicities, all nationalities. I'm very well aware that all ethnic groups of women suffer as victims of sexual objectification, are used in the same negative portrayals by corporations for the bottom line, which is the dollar. However, the reason Volume 1 is dedicated to women of the black community is because when you take a body into the ER, into the emergency room, the first thing that the doctors are going to do is they're going to address that part of the body which is the most affected by its wounds. Whether it's the kidney or the liver, if that has been the most damaged, then that's the part of the body they're going to address first because it's the most acute. And so that's why this particular three-volume series, Volume 1 is dedicated to the black woman, because unfortunately, statistically speaking, if we are even to believe statistics, black women suffer at more higher rates of whether it's disease or incarceration or single-family homes, headed homes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, than any other ethnic group. So that is the one reason why I'm trying to focus first and foremost on the women of our community. Mm-hmm. And in regards to uh, what is in the book, it is a nonfiction work. It's a biblically-based work, and it's written in the style of the Song of Solomon in the Bible, as well as the Book of Psalms in the Bible. It's 50 individual pieces, and it's uh, coming from a man's perspective mm-hmm. of how to uplift a woman. And the various titles, to give you an idea, uh, various titles will be Abundance, All Things Beautiful, Anticipation, Aspire, Black Woman, I Love You, Balance, Benevolence, Black Woman Rising, etc., etc. So you can see from those titles the type of pieces that are written are in a love letter acknowledging the power of your existence, acknowledging your contribution to uh, humanity. Acknowledge who you are in my life, et cetera, et cetera. So I believe that your audience would be very well fed, very well nurtured by virtue of reading. Wow. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. I wanted to say, now, you're a musician. You traveled traveled the globe, and I'm sure you had your opportunities to come in contact with many different women uh, from many different cultures around the world over the 30-plus years that you have been performing, and I, you know, you pick up the paper or you look on the internet, and you see the life that many, whether they're athletes or entertainers, uh, live. It, it doesn't show. It's, it, it almost seems as though many, many men, not certainly not all, treat women like a game, like it's a game. I'm, I'm going to catch ten women today, like you're going fishing. I'm going to catch five women tomorrow. It's almost like a game. <laughs> like you're just fishing, or ten, how many fish you can catch, and, and it's it, and you 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 um, uh, like a man's observing a woman and saying this is what women like, so I'll give them that to catch them. I I don't really care anything about them, but they don't know that, and they don't need to know that. If they knew that, they wouldn't come along with me. And then when I'm done, I'll just throw them back in the water. So you see, you see a lot of that, and I wanted to ask you. 
when I look out, and it could be because I am a woman and I'm looking through a woman's eyes. I have a son, and sometimes I hear him say things like things that women think or say. He'll say, they just doesn't make any sense. I don't even know. You all think the way you do. So he's looking through a man's eyes, and he's a wonderful, my son is a wonderful young man, but could be because I'm looking through a woman's eyes. When I look through my eyes as a woman, it seems when you talk about, uh, to me it appears there are more virtuous women but not enough virtuous men. And, again, in large part because I think a lot of men feel, I interviewed a, a gentleman on off the shelf who had written a book, that he he really said he started wanting to protect his daughters. He was a what they call I've heard men say the the alpha male, and the alpha male wants to get as many women as he can. He generally is very assertive as a businessman, and he just feels very much like the top dog when he does that. And that could cause some of this what what we see going on in our communities and cultures. Do you think because I'm looking through a woman's eyes, do you think the numbers are out of balance? Uh, that there are more women who are virtuous than men, would you say so? Or perhaps it's just something I've got a blind spot maybe you could say and I'm just not seeing something. Well, I think you know, it all boils down to individual perception. It all boils down to subjective opinion. Um, certainly the media seems to be portraying now, this has been a hot potato with the media for some time to try to portray the African-American woman as someone who is alone and not able to find her counterpart, et cetera, et cetera. We know that the numbers of quality black men have diminished greatly as a result of the plan that was put in place against the black community for the last 50 years, and that is to bring drugs and guns into our communities so that we can kill ourselves. If they can no longer legally kill us, and when I say they, I mean assess evil oppression or oppressive forces or the powers that be. If they can no longer kill us, then let us kill ourselves. And the best way to destroy the family is by taking the man out of the family. And so when we do look at incarceration rates across the country for federal and state prisons, we do see that why is it that African-American men comprise the highest component when we look at the uh, spirit of homosexuality, when we look at homosexuality as a factor, once again, it takes out a, a, a component of availability for black women. When we look at interracial marriage and the rise of it, it takes out a component of quality black men for, for black women. So those factors notwithstanding, I do believe that there are, or there continues to be an army of men of valor who are, there, who are available, who are pursuing African-American women. I do believe that nature always balances out, in spite of what man may do. Nature always balances out the equation. And we have to remember that there's another hand at foot that has an interest in our division. So why is it that Nightline and this program and that television program and this magazine and that magazine are just constantly now talking about black women as being alone? as not having a suitable mm. counterpart, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not saying that we should not believe our truthful lies because we can go to many different churches across the country and we will see a majority of the attendees or a majority yeah. of the congregants are black women and black men right. seem to be uh, active, you know, vacant. They seem to be absent. But at the same time, I have to tend to believe that if we are a people of faith, if we are a people of God, then we're going to believe that God has someone for us. We cannot allow ourselves to dwell or abide in the statistics of fear. We cannot perceive ourselves. I'm speaking if, if we are a woman. You cannot perceive yourself as someone who will never have that rightful, truthful, qualitative counterpart in your life. That compromises the word of God. It compromises your faith. It puts you in a psychological state of mind that, that handicaps you. You have to see yourself walking with your partner. And if you believe in the law of attraction, then that man will manifest himself into your life. We as men have an equal responsibility. We cannot see ourselves as someone who is going to just go about with these conquests of women and putting another notch on our belt. And I'm not going to settle down with one woman, but I'm going to conquer multiple women. Well, kind or of settle down saying, with one and or settle down with one and have 50 on the side. Exactly. Exactly. And and that is not the way to go. That ain't nothing but a half broken down pimp. That's all you're trying to do. And the bottom line is you're just pimping yourself. 
You know, you're pimping yourself because you might want to play this game here on earth, but God is watching you. Right. God is watching you. And you're also setting an example for the generation who is coming up under you, whether it's your son or whether it's your daughter. They may not see what you're doing, but believe me, that energy of the wickedness oh, yes. that you're doing will come off. It will be revealed. Uh, you know. So we have a lot of growing up to do. We have a lot of maturing to do. And I especially would, would admonish those men who, who are in their 40s and 50s and 60s and still playing that game. Come on now. The word of God says that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. But the wisdom of the streets says if it don't come out in the wash, it'll come out in the rinse. So right. come on, let's let's keep it real. Right. And let's right. stop hurting our women by virtue of exploiting them, exploiting their singularity, exploiting their desire for affection, for appreciation, for seeking a partner of whom would walk with them hand in hand towards a, a collective goal. Let's stop exploiting that just for the means of physical gratification. That's why you're doing that? Come on. So in my book, I challenge our men to step up and to perceive and reevaluate our woman in a way that is more godly, in a way that is more holistic. Because the key is we have daughters. The majority of us men have daughters. And we have to ask ourselves, would we like our daughters to be treated right. the same way we are treating another man's daughter? Right. Or your sister or your mother. Thank you. Yeah. That Thank that you. and 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 I wanna as we come down to the last eight minutes of yes. today's show, I, I just wanted to also interject this, um and I heard this on a on a uh B T's got a show and I forget the name of it, where a group of black men discuss a topic for about an hour and one thing they were saying is and I agree with this completely, women have also we've gotta be accountable for the type of men we choose to allow into our lives and not play the victim role where we say, oh, my gosh, he had he had five babies by three other women, and he's not taking care of my child either. Well, what are you, what are you thinking? Right. <laughs> we've, we've, right. Got to, we've got to take better care ourselves. We've got to we do more investigating before we accept a job or right. buy a house or move into That's an apartment. Right. We, we've right. got to. We've got to. Uh, women have a big role in this, so we've got to take care. Yeah, we've got to love God. ourselves, mm-hmm. and enough to say, I'm not. I'm, I'm going to do my due diligence before I go into you know, a relationship. Um, I know we only have a couple of minutes, but you you just raised a very good point because this past week I just partnered with an organization called the National Domestic Violence Registry, and speaking of statistics, the highest rates of domestic abuse are suffered by black women. They are the victims of the highest rate of domestic abuse, the highest rates of intimate partner abuse. And the National Domestic Violence Registry has has created a database, not unlike the National Sex Offender Registry, where you can, if you are starting to date someone and you have curiosities about this particular individual, you can go to their database. It's Mm. free. It's online. You can type in the individual's name. You can type in what state he lives in, et cetera. If he has any past convictions, he or she, if they have any past convictions, of domestic violence, or even if they have a uh, order of protection brought out against them as a result of domestic violence, their information will pop up, their face, their name, everything. So this is what this is doing is empowering you as a woman or a man to make an educated decision. Now, what's the name of the registry again for our office? Sure, it's the National Domestic Violence Registry, and the website is NDVR uh, Registry. The National Domestic Violence Registry for Off the Shelf Listeners. You might want to put that one, put put a little note on that one when you're out there yeah. and you're with and somebody. You're like, I'm wondering about this uh, guy. Look him up. In the or this woman, because women do domestic violence too. And no I doubt. Look, look what happened. Look, look what happened to my man in Orange County, California, last week when you know. Oh got my goodness! Like, let me okay. let me let me let me, log, let me log in this person's name okay. and make sure. Let me give you yes. the correct website address. It's domesticviolencedatabase.org. Domesticviolencedatabase.org. So empower ourselves. Let's find out who it is that wants to take us to, you know, either Shay Shay Perez, the fancy restaurant, or to McDonald's. <laughs> Let's find out who this individual is because it may be a nightmare disguised as a dream. Okay. So, <laughs> you better know, they got wolves and out you, there. Yes. Oh my! What what are some of the responses, Russell, that you're receiving mm-hmm. from readers about Proverbs 31, the virtuous black woman? 
It's been overwhelmingly positive, overwhelmingly. From book clubs, I have a support letter from uh, Michelle Obama. I've got an endorsement from actress Kim Coles, political strategist Jonathan Brazil, jazz icon Sonny Rollins, Randy Weston. I've gotten so much tremendous support from the entertainment community, from the political community, and from day-in, day-out, hard-working sisters across the country. The support and the feedback has been 99% positive. And so I'm so very grateful to God that through this support, it's an affirmation of what he placed into my spirit Mm. to write. Because what we need now, more than we do more Christian erotica book about a woman sleeping with the pastor and all that, what we need is books of love, affirming the beauty, the power, the existence, the dynamic qualities that black women are bringing to the table each and every day. Mm. But she's not getting enough admiration for that. She's not getting enough love. And it's got to be about the love. Because if it's not about the love, then it ain't about nothing. Okay. I want to now let our listeners know some places where they can go to get your music, your books, see you perform. Uh, As we come down to the last few minutes of the day's show, are you going to be uh, giving any performances, any concerts over the next coming weeks or months? And if if so, can you give us at least two or three dates, locations, where you'll be so our listeners, if they want to, can come out and uh, check you out? By all means, over the next several weeks, I'm going to be in the studio producing the next record. But the next uh, performance will be August the 20th. The Black Book, the Los Angeles Black Book Expo, will be at the Los Angeles Convention Center. And that's August the 20th. And I will be there not only at my table with my books, ready to autograph and sell and speak, but I'll also be giving a presentation. Uh, speaking presentation for 45 minutes in the main room, as well as a solo performance on the bass at the end of the day. So I'll be there in three different formats at one location, the Los Angeles Black Book Expo at the Los Angeles Convention Center, August the 20th. August the 20th, okay. And and CDs, where can people pick up? Do you have any music where you're either performing with another artist or solo where off the shelf listeners can pick up any of your CDs and enjoy your music that way as well. Thank you so much, Denise, for saying that. I got to pay the bills. You read about that. Folks can go to either iTunes <laughs> or Amazon.com. Just put my name in the search field and everything will come up. Stuff I've done by myself, stuff I've done with individuals. You will see me all over there. You won't see me in the post office wall, but I will be all over iTunes and Amazon.com. <laughs> That's right. You heard it here first. That's right. <laughs> how, how was it? What was it like with this? We only uh, have like two minutes left. But what was it like performing with Wynton Marsalis, Shaka Khan, Angie Stone? I wanted to ask you, their music is so different. What was it like yeah. performing with those? You know, Denise, it's not unlike when you interview a different powerful guest every week. You know, on your show, you get something different from interacting with that particular individual who would have been gifted you know, in a particular art form. So it was it was great to to work with Winston. He actually uh, did a gig with him with Sonny Rollins, and he was actually a special guest for the gig. Wow. Angie Stone, phenomenal talent. Chaka Khan, phenomenal talent. I uh, went on tour with her for about six months, and uh, we had a great time. I know her as uh, as Yvette. That's her real name, Yvette Stevens. But oh, to the okay. world, she was Chaka. But backstage mm-hmm. and on the road and everything, we were all family. So that's what I love about most of these great musicians is that there's one persona in front of the camera, but behind the camera, the majority of them are down to earth, and it's a family. It's like family. And, uh, you know, we're very protective over her uh, to make sure that no harm came to her as a result of obsessive fans while she was very protective over us in ensuring that all of our needs were taken care of, from, you know, the money to the politics to everything else. So just like you doing your show, it was a blessing. To work with okay, mm-hmm. uh, and and you have it has been a blessing having you here with us, and we have been speaking with Russell Blake. He's online mm-hmm. at again www russell that's one l r u s s e l b l a k e dot net. He is a a very talented musician. I encourage you to go. Just, hey, you can either go get a seat, get a CD copy of his, and support him. Mm-hmm. Before that, yes, make, you can get it. You. Go ahead. I just want to make one more thing because I know y'all are going through the heat wave. I'm, I'm in L.A. right now, but I, I got I got air conditioners for sale too. I'm selling air conditioners, Denise. Hello. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
okay. I got some loose air conditioners now, so come on. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay, okay. He's doing CDs and his music, and again, he's online at Russell, R-U-S-S-E-L-B-L-A-K-E.net. You can pick up a copy of his of you can pick up a copy of his book, Proverbs thirty one, the virtuous black woman. He will be at the LA Book Expo on yeah. August the twentieth, and he's right now. He said in the studio working on new music. We want to thank Russell for being here with us today, and we thank each of our our listeners for tuning in. Please tune in next Saturday at eleven o'clock, where we'll bring another phenomenal guest to you who will share information that will help enrich and improve your lives and help you move forward as an author and as a human being. Thank you again, Russell. Thank you to all our listeners. Remember, you're so truly blessed and so valued. Go out and create a marvelously good day for yourself today. Russell, I'll shoot you an email. Bye for now. Peace. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.